Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on Chicago Tonight. I'm Paris Schutz. Brandis Friedman has the evening off. Here's what we're looking at. A bill like this is fundamentally about public safety. Why state lawmakers want to hold Uber and Lyft to stricter standards for passenger safety. First-hand accounts of working in Syria and Turkey in the aftermath of the devastating earthquakes. The FAA paves the way for an airport expansion, but prairie preservationists say they won't give up the battle to save an endangered bumblebee. Birria is not only something we do for a living, it's actually embedded in our DNA. And a century-old family recipe from Mexico that's perfect for winter days in Chicago. Now to our top story tonight. Illinois lawmakers are proposing to get even tougher with regulations on rideshare companies. Right now, Uber and Lyft are exempt from the so-called common carrier standard that applies to other forms of transportation like railroads and airlines. Supporters of this change say it's a huge public safety need, but the move has drawn pushback from Uber, Lyft and local business groups. And Nick Blumberg joins us now with more on this. Uh, Nick, explain to this, this common carrier thing. Well, Paris, when you get on a plane or you get into a taxi cab, you're not in charge of how the driver or the pilot behaves. That's why under Illinois law, those forms of getting around and others like the ones you just mentioned are considered common carriers. Now that means that entities moving travelers from point A to point B are held to a high standard of keeping those passengers safe from harm. You are turning over your safety to the person that is behind the wheel. That is really the rationale for the heightened standard of care that applies to common carriers. And you know, similarly, um, doesn't uh, support the continued exemption from that standard of care for Uber and Lyft. That's why Gong Gershowitz is sponsoring a bill that would take away rideshare companies' exemption from the common carrier standard. All right, remind us how they got this exemption to begin with. Well, Gong Gershowitz told me that when lawmakers first moved to regulate rideshare companies, they were these scrappy upstarts, and the idea was to help encourage competition. But given their ubiquity now, she says the exemption just doesn't make sense anymore, and that holding them to a higher standard will help make everyone safer. Yeah, it's pretty much they're the only game in town right now, at least in the city of Chicago. So what sort of response have Uber and Lyft had to this bill? I imagine they're not in support of it. As you'd probably expect, they are both opposed to it, yes. Uh, in its testimony that it filed with the House committee that heard the bill, Lyft said, since day one, we've built safety into every part of the Lyft experience. And it argues that while a common carrier company may employ a few dozen professional chauffeurs, rideshare companies rely on an enormous network of thousands of independent drivers who control when, where, and how often they work. Now, Brad Teets of the Chicagoland Chamber of Commerce echoed that, saying taking an Uber or Lyft is an agreement between driver and rider. To his mind, that's a safety measure in and of itself. I have the ability when I pull up Uber or Lyft to say, you know, to see the background of this driver. If he's only got, you know, two and a half to three stars, I cancel that ride. And maybe it's a $5 charge for me, but I'm willing to take that <laughs> in, in lieu of riding with somebody I don't believe is going to be safe. For its part, an Uber spokesperson tells WTTW News this proposal would make Illinois the only state that treats rideshare this way, severely impacting drivers' ability to earn money. Now, a handful of other states do hold rideshare companies to the common carrier standard, though those measures haven't been passed by state lawmakers. They face challenges. They're more limited in some of the scopes. 
Clark Carricker of the Illinois Chamber of Commerce is also opposed to the bill. He says state law already requires Uber and Lyft to carry $1 million insurance policies in case passengers are hurt or even killed. And he also thinks additional regulation could push rideshare companies to leave the state, costing drivers work and making it tougher for people to get around. It ferries business travelers and tourists all around the state. And most importantly, it's a huge public safety tool which keeps tens of thousands of uh, potential drunk drivers off the road uh, each year and makes us all safer as we get around and travel the state's uh, roadways. But Gong Gershowitz says that's not the only safety consideration, with drivers having been accused of physically and sexually assaulting passengers. And she argues the companies are doing just fine in places where they face tighter restrictions. We simply cannot uh, continue to exempt Uber and Lyft from the same standards of care that would apply to any other uh, taxi, train, common carrier. Uh, One of my colleagues pointed out that a Ferris wheel is a common carrier in Illinois. Um, Uber and Lyft are common carriers and should be treated as such. The bill has passed the House Judiciary Civil Committee. Gong Gershowitz told me she's looking forward to taking it to the House floor for debate. And Paris, I can imagine there will be plenty of it. I'm sure the rideshare companies will send the representatives and it will be a very robust debate. All right, Nick, very interesting. Thanks very much. Thank you. And now more of today's top stories. The state Supreme Court is expediting a hearing on a legal challenge to Illinois' new ban on so-called assault weapons. The high court says it'll hear oral arguments on the case in May. The state quickly appealed after a downstate judge ruled in favor of dozens of plaintiffs who argued the ban violated Illinois law. It's one of the many lawsuits against the ban working their way through state and federal court. The ultimate judgment on the law will likely come from the U.S. Supreme Court. The world premiere NASCAR race around Grant Park is leaving a sour taste in some mouths. The plan calls for the race and surrounding events to be held July 4th weekend. That's one of the weekends Taste of Chicago is traditionally supposed to be held. Downtown Alderman Brendan Riley is blasting the move, saying the mayor's office quietly and without input decided to move the taste to Polk Brothers Park just west of Navy Pier. City Council Cultural Affairs Committee Chair Alderman Nick Spazzato put the brakes on the special events ordinance authorizing the taste. Riley says the pier should ultimately reject the move. And the pier is run by a nonprofit public private entity. It has not yet approved any of this. Another day, another set of endorsements in the runoff race for Chicago mayor. Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle throws her support behind her colleague, Brandon Johnson. Meanwhile, Paul Vallis got the endorsement of Dr. Joyce Kenner, the longtime principal at Whitney Young Magnet High School. Jonathan Vallis will appear in their first runoff debate tomorrow evening, moderated by Marianne Ahern at NBC5. Up next, local doctors who have just returned from earthquake-ravaged Turkey and Syria share their experiencing, experiences treating patients. That's right after this. Chicago Tonight is made possible in part by Alexandra and John Nichols, the Jim and Kay Maybe family, the Polk Brothers Foundation, and the support of these donors. Some prominent local doctors recently returned from a humanitarian mission to Syria and Turkey. More than 50,000 people are dead after two major earthquakes rocked areas of both countries last month. 
Millions were injured or left homeless. Those who have a home are afraid of sleeping indoors, fearing more tremors. And joining us to share their experiences are Dr. Zahir Salul, president and co-founder of Med Global, associate professor at UIC, and pulmonary and critical care specialist at Advocate Christ Medical Center in St. Anthony Hospitals. Dr. Imran Akbar, anesthesiologist at Advocate Christ Medical Center, and Dr. Thayer Ahmad, Global Health Director and Assistant Residency Program Director at Advocate Christ Medical Center. Gentlemen, welcome all of you to Chicago Night. You're just back from this journey Thursday and Friday of last week. Uh, Dr. Saul, 7.8 magnitude earthquake, 50,000 and counting reported dead. Translate this uh, to viewers to what you witnessed on the ground. So sometimes you look at these numbers and you, you know, it's a large scale earthquake. Uh, 23 million people were impacted in Turkey and, and Syria. But unless you go there and zoom in and you see the destruction in cities like Kahraman Mirage and uh, Nurdag in Turkey and Harim and um, uh, Janderis in Syria, you cannot imagine the scale of the, of the earthquake. We've seen families who were devastated. One of the stories, painful stories that stuck in our mind is this uh, boy, his name was Hassan, he's four years old. He was pulled from under the rubbles after 44 hours of ordeal. He lost all of his family except for his dad and he lost also part of his leg because of the crush injury. I, I read about that. He was, he was under rubble for 44 hours and you were able to operate him, uh, on him and basically save his life. Yes, we had an orthopedic surgeon uh, and actually Dr. Imran did the anesthesia. Yeah, um, what happened is part of his foot had become crushed by uh, some rubble that had fallen on it. And so when we recovered him, um, there was no blood supply to his foot. He, it was completely vascularly compromised. And so, and had become black and gangrenous, and the only thing we could do at this point was to actually amputate his foot. And it was absolutely heartbreaking as a four-year-old child, uh, you know, I have children, we all have children, to see that, see how his life is going to be affected from here on out, not just from the actual trauma of losing his foot, but losing his family, his place of living, and so forth, and the, the trauma that his family would have to deal with. And, and viewers just have to imagine that happening on a scope of thousands and thousands exactly. of people experiencing this uh, right now. Dr. Ahmed, uh, according to Reuters, uh, the death toll is surpassed 50,000. Turkey has seen the brunt of that. Give us a scope of the humanitarian and health crisis that is, this has set off in both countries. Well, as you can imagine, especially in Syria, the health sector already was suffering because what you're looking at is you're looking at a region that's cut off from the rest of the world. There's a small strip of land that connects them to the outside world being Turkey. Now, when you have an earthquake of this magnitude and this many people have been devastated by it, the burden on the healthcare system is going to be one that is not going to be able to respond. And so I think what we saw were people who were looking for help, who needed help, and help wasn't getting to them, and it wasn't getting to them in time. Dr. Salul, uh, Americans know that the politics of the region are fraught. Syria uh, it does not have a good relationship with the United States. How are you able to navigate that, to get into Syria, to be able to treat all these people? I mean, this part of Syria, northwest of uh, Syria, a province called Idlib, has 4.2 million people. Half of them are displaced from other parts of Syria, Homs, Aleppo, and Damascus. And they were at war with the rest of uh, Syria by the Assad regime. Assad regime and Russia have been bombing them nonstop for the past 12 years. This is the same area that witnessed barrel bombing, chemical weapons attack, COVID pandemic. There was a cholera outbreak before this earthquake, and now this earthquake. The only access to this area is from Turkey. So we are able to work with the Turkish government to let us get into this part of Syria uh, through uh, one of the border crossing, Bab al-Salama. And from there, we went from city to city to provide training to the 
doctors there on portable ultrasound. This is a device that they can use to manage their patients with, uh, who have trauma. And also we had a group of three psychiatrists who uh, did training on mental health support, re-traumatization, and how to develop skills on psychiatric recovery. Just an unfathomable series of events over the last 12 years uh, that the folks in Syria and that part of Turkey have faced. Dr. Akbar, what about the folks that are alive, 50,000 plus dead, but millions and millions alive in impact? How are the sanitary conditions, the housing conditions at this point? Well, obviously, you now have an enormous number of people that are displaced, uh, that have no place to live. And I think one of the biggest challenges in both countries is finding housing for these people. Right now, a lot of these people are staying temporarily in, in tents. Um, you know, and then the issue of sanitation, safety, um, you know, diseases, uh, all becomes, you know, uh, beca becomes problematic. So um, it's absolutely an issue, and I think the international community is, is slowly recognizing that. It's a larger issue in Syria, I would say, than in Turkey. Um, a lot of aid has come to Turkey, um, just given the isolation of Syria, uh, particularly that part of Syria, and the only able to, uh, in, in the only ability to access is through Turkey, that area has been really hard hit with the lack of these supplies. And I think the UN had set a goal of raising at least a billion dollars here for relief. How, how, what is the gap here between what is needed in terms of resources and doctors and boots on the ground versus what's there right now? Well, I mean, I think what's there is a fraction of what's needed. And I think the UN, they can, you know, they, they set the goal, and I'm sure that's appropriate. But if there's, if there's any indication in terms of uh, what they're going to be able to do in, in the response time, the lag that it took the U.N. to actually show up to this area. I don't have a lot of confidence in the U.N. being able to do much. It's going to require the entire international community, NGOs, aid organizations, because these doctors who are there, the very few that have remained there, they need support in all sorts of you know, supplies. They need other people there to be able to help them. So um, it's, it's really a devastating scenario, and I think people have to step up, and the time is now. And Dr. Salu, how many people are displaced right now, and what is their life like? Are they living in fear, given what's happened and given the conditions right now? Uh, because of the earthquake, there is about 300,000 people who are now newly displaced due to the earthquake. This area in Syria had uh, about 2.5 million people who were displaced from before because of the war. Many of them have been displaced four and five times, and you have now additional displacement. And they live in very poor conditions. We went to some of these temporary uh, uh, camps, and you know, it's, imagine you have four families living in a tent. Some of the families are looking for a tent, yeah. and they cannot find a tent even. So this is a huge problem, shelter and rebuilding of what destroyed in Syria, despite of being this open-air uh, prison, and that requires a lot of attention from the international community. Band-Aids will not help here. We need permanent solutions for this displacement. 1.5 million live in, in camps in Syria, in this part of Syria, and also long-term solution for the political problem that led to this war in Syria and the division of Syria to four parts. You, you mentioned that uh, it, it's a barbaric civil war at the hands of Bashar al-Assad. And as I understand, some of the, the Syrian Turkish governments are blocking some relief because of the politics. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, there's only three border crossings that now allowed to get uh, the humanitarian aid in into Syria. Um, two of them will be blocked by the Assad regime after two months from now, and this is inhumane. And I cannot imagine any government, responsible government, that will prevent baby milk from getting into the population that they are bombing. And this is what's happening in Syria for the past 12 years. So, uh, so, so the politics here could even further complicate what's already a humanitarian crisis. Uh, Dr. Akbar, if people watching right now, they want to help, what, what would you say to them? 
Well, I think uh, uh, the organization that we're with, Med Global, has done a phenomenal job in reaching out to, uh, to um, uh, the folks in Turkey, and particularly in Syria, because it's such an inaccessible place. I would say they could support Med Global uh, financially or in any other way possible. There's several other organizations that are doing humanitarian and medical work. I think that can definitely go out to them. I think political awareness of the situation will also help. And Med Global, I mean, it's an organization that's not just in Syria, but it's been in a lot of crisis zones in the last several years. That give us a sense of the scope of the work that yeah, the I mean, is I, doing. What I think is incredible about the organization, it goes to places that people aren't normally going to because of the situations that are arising in them. The Ukraine, the Gaza Strip, they dealt with the, refu the migrant crisis in Venezuela as well. And so I think the organization, the goals of it are basically how can we support the people on the ground in a way that after we leave these areas that they were going to be able to support themselves, that they can depend on themselves. And that's all these people are asking for, too. They want to be reliant on themselves. They're not looking for handouts. They're not looking for charity. And I think MedGlobal is trying to at least promote that sort of resiliency within the local population. And, and do you all plan on returning at some point? Absolutely. Yeah. In the near yes. future? Absolutely. We'll have to follow that. All right. Uh, our thanks uh, to Dr. Zahir Zalul, uh, Imran Akbar, and Dr. Thayer Ahmed. Dr. Imran Akbar and Dr. Thayer Ahmed, thank, thank you, you all for being here with us. Thank you for having us. And up next, Prairie Advocates are putting up a fight against plans for an airport expansion in Rockford, so please stay with us. FAA ruling could have a profound impact on an endangered bumblebee. WTDW News reporter Patty Wetley has been following the fight to save Bell Bowl Prairie near Rockford for the past year and a half, and she joins us now with an update. Patty, as we mentioned, you've been covering this over the last right. year. What is the very latest in this dispute? Well, just to catch people up quickly, Bell Bowl Prairie is within the confines of the property of the Greater Rockford Airport. And they want to build an expansion of their cargo operation, a road planned to go straight through the prairie. And the FAA had them go back and revisit their plans based on the discovery of this endangered bumblebee on, on the property. They went back, reevaluated their plan, are going with an alternate plan for where the roadway goes through now. Less prairie going to be bulldozed, but the FAA gave them the okay to go ahead with this alternate. So what it is, is going to take out some of the prairie. Clearly the FAA uh, concerned about all flying objects <laughs> like bees. So what's, what's this going to do to the bees then? Well, it knocks out a fair amount of habitat where the bee can nest. So they're not going to be able to do any operations within the prairie, any construction after March 15th which is why there's kind of a rush on right now. If they are going to start clearing through the prairie for this roadway, it needs to be done before the 15th. And the suspicion is that it could happen as soon as Thursday, which is why opponents have filed a stay with the court system. They'll be rallying on Wednesday to try and get this stopped. So just to be clear, per the FAA ruling, if they don't start this and pave this by the 15th, they can't do it then? They can dig it up as of the through the 15th, then they would have to wait until October 15th. 
Um, and by that point, uh, people who want to save the prayer are hoping they can put enough pressure on Governor J.B. Pritzker to get this roadway moved to a, an alternate that goes around the prairie altogether. So some of the folks that we see demonstrating here, there is still a chance they can stop this entire project. They're, they're waiting to hear from the courts tomorrow whether a stay will be in place. So it, there are still some more judicial options um, but that could be the end of the line. All right, quite a buzz out there, Patty. Sorry, didn't mean to go there. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Paris. And you can read Patty's full story on our website. It's all at wttw.com news. Up next, cooking up a century-old family recipe right after a look at the weather. There are seven culinary regions in Mexico, each with their own unique foods, techniques, and flavors that have evolved over the centuries. In a classic tale of Mexican ingenuity, the chili braised stew birria was created as a way to take advantage of an overpopulation of goats in the Jalisco region. Fifty years ago, a Jalisense named Ramon Reyes brought his family's century-old birria recipe to Chicago's southeast side. Now his son is bringing the traditional dish to a new generation. Producer Erica Gunderson stews on this story. Birria is not only something we do for a living, it's actually embedded in our DNA. I like to believe so. When Andy Reyes rhapsodizes about the perfect bowl of birria, he has four generations of his forebears speaking through him. I have to have a piece of costilla, the rib, with a little bit of fat and a little bit of meat towards the end, drenched a little bit in consomme, with onion and cilantro. First you put the lime, then you get the tortilla, you put the meat, put some salsa, and then you take a bite out of it. That is, for me, birria. Though Andy is only the second generation of Reyes's to run Birria Ocatlan, the family's birria recipe goes back to 1926, when his great-grandfather developed his own version of the stewed goat recipe in Ocatlan, Jalisco. When Andy's father, Ramon Reyes, immigrated to the Chicago area, he brought the birria know-how with him. His uncle was here in Chicago, and at 18, my dad receives this postcard. And it was one of those old-school postcards where it said Chicago and it had the skyline. He pulls out the postcard and points out to his friends and says, Hey guys, look, it's my uncle from, he lives in Chicago now. And one day, I'm going to sell birria right here. In 1973, Ramon Reyes made good on that prediction. He took over a small diner at 87th and Commercial and began selling the family specialty. A second location on 106th Street was added in 1992. Over the years, all four of Ramon and Linda Reyes's children worked at the family restaurants. I remember making uh, like my debut officially, like when I was eight years old, and he'd sit me down in the corner and I'd be a chubby little kid eating my taco, you know? I started working here literally in high school. I remember I used to play football and I would have practice on Saturdays after practice when all my friends would go hang out, I'd come here. When Ramon stepped away from the business for health reasons five years ago, Andy, the youngest child, stepped in. I wasn't ready, but luckily I have my sisters. That's the beautiful thing about having a family business. You won't be alone. 
Since then, Andy has helped steer the restaurant through COVID by bringing some modern marketing to the traditional dish and updating the menu to include trendy quesadilla tacos. We kept everyone on payroll, but we closed for like a month and a half. So what did I do? I got back on social media. ¿Qué pasó? ¿Qué leo? And because of social media, I got traction. Andy says he feels a responsibility to his family and the community that sustained them to keep Birria Ocotlan thriving. I think the love and the heart that my father put initially into this business, the relationships he's able to build with the community, and I think the recipe itself speaks volumes. We do put a lot of heart and soul into our food. We've been doing this for, man, close to 100 years now in my family. I've seen four or five generations come in through the door, and that's very special. If it wasn't for the community, we wouldn't be where we're at. Food is supposed to bring people together. It unites people from all different walks of life, from every culture. So Virga is, is for everybody. For Chicago Tonight, this is Erica Gunderson. My mouth is watering. What a story. And you'll find more on Birria Ocotlan on our website. Back to wrap things up right after this. What should the city be doing to better support black Chicagoans who are victims and survivors of hate crimes? Classic city of Chicago, we work in silos, so the left hand doesn't know what the right hand doing, and the constituents get left out in between. Power is the voice. The power is the numbers. The power are the people. The ability to sway election is the power. That is our show for this Tuesday night. Please join us tomorrow night live at 10. Candidates for Mayor Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis in their first runoff debate. Our Spotlight Politics team shares the highlights. And mosaics created out of some unexpected household items. Now for all of us here at Chicago Tonight, I'm Paris Schutz. I thank you for watching. Stay healthy and safe and have a great evening. Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a personal injury law firm dedicated to preserving the dignity and rights of all individuals.